Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. About three weeks ago, when I, when I was here last, a few weeks ago, and then the week before, uh, I spoke about body life, you may remember. You may not, but I want to remind you what I spoke of in these previous two messages because they are related to what I'm going to speak to you about today. Uh, remember the first time we talked about body life in 1 Corinthians 12 and how the church is compared to a human body with different parts doing different functions and we don't need to be jealous of the eye if we're an ear uh, because if everyone were an eye, where would the hearing be? So we all have different gifts and talents that the Lord has given us, and we are not to be proud of them. We're just to receive them as they are, which are gifts. Um, And also the Lord gives us talents, which aren't uh, spiritual gifts, but they are things the Lord gives to us to use for His honor and His glory. And I connected the one another's then with the, uh, the body life. So we are to do different things. Remember, we talked about love one another and how often that's mentioned in the Scriptures and um, uh, serve one another, tolerate one another, be patient with, with one another. One another. Um, um, all these one another's, there's about 40 of them we went through, even just from the New Testament. Remember Bill? Uh, Bill, who was in the former church that my wife and I were a part of, that big church, and I was very satisfied with our growth group and contented, and Bill came along, and I didn't at first want him in our growth group because Bill had nothing to offer. In my pride, I was thinking, Bill has nothing to offer, and it's not that the Lord spoke to me. I'm not saying that, but I sensed that he was not pleased with me, and so I invited Bill into our group, and he became a great blessing, and then Bill fell away. Um, So we serve one another, we tolerate one another. The next time I spoke with you, I talked about the be and the do dynamic. My concern was that when we talk about all these one another's and things we're supposed to do, we can get exhausted because um, just doing without being is not the Lord's plan. We cited what is known as the Shema, the foremost commandment from Deuteronomy 6, and the Lord affirmed this as the foremost commandment from Matthew 22. The Shema says from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and here's what you should do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the B. They shall be on your heart. They shall be there. They shall be guarded in your heart, protected in your heart. Uh, If you were in a prison by yourself, would you be able to remember any of the principles, any of the scriptures that the Lord is wanting you to learn and apply to your life? He wants you to be that way. And then with the being comes the doing. Verse 7, right after the being statement, you shall do what? Well, here's what you shall do. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. He's always present. The being the doing are connected so that if you forget and you do, 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 you will become exhausted and you'll want to quit. It's a, a spiritual fact of life. What the Lord does is an outpouring of who He is. 
What the Lord says in the scripture, what he demonstrated for us in all of his actions is just a simple outpouring of who he is. Remember what he said to the woman, I'm sorry, he didn't say this to the woman at the well, but after he, he uh, ministered to the woman at the well, his disciples, we kind of laugh at this now, but they're wondering what kind of food he's been eating. Who gave you food? This is a disciple's problem. That's our problem today. We didn't understand what the Lord's doing. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. That's what sustains me. That's the being, and then I do as a result of being. That's the be and the do dynamic. Now, today I want to talk to you about a third connector to that principle, those principles of body life, of um, um, the one another's, uh, the being and the doing. It's about our agendas and our expectations. And here's my proposal to you. So I want to make sure we say it clearly and, and plain, plainly and straight up. Real peace, long-lasting peace, peace that surpasses understanding in this life is a fruit of a heart aligned with the Lord's agenda, aligned with His economy, aligned with His purposes and His values. You may say, well, if I only had that car, if I only had that person, or if I only had that job, or if I only had that situation, if I didn't have this neighbor, if I had my health this way, that's not it. And I'm not saying that those things aren't disruptions in our lives and they're not difficult. They are. I know they are. But if you want lasting peace, young people sitting right here, if you want lasting peace in this life, align your heart with what God says are His values, His economy, and His agenda. Don't align yourself with the world's agenda. They will lead you down a path of destruction. But sin is fun for a season. It is for a season until you pay the price. Real lasting peace in this life is a fruit of a heart aligned with the Lord's agenda, His economy, and His values. That's it. That's the secret of life. We're going to be looking at two gospel sections, Mark chapter 8 and Matthew 16. We'll be bouncing a little bit back and forth, and that's okay because, you know, the gospels, sometimes they, they're written by different men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll read something from Matthew, for example, and the same account will be described in the Gospel of Mark, and there'll be some things that are not said in Mark and some things that are said in Matthew or color words or things that help you see the whole picture. So we're going to be looking at both sections in Mark and in Matthew, Mark 8 and Matthew 16. Let me open in prayer as we look at the Scriptures. Father, this is the time so crucial to our spiritual health and our spiritual life where we're going to look into your word to see what you have for us. It's not what you are trying to say to us. It's what you are saying to us, and we are trying to understand. You're not, the, you're not the problem. Your word is not the problem, and we acknowledge that today. The problem is me. The problem is each of us who are tied up in sin often. But, Lord, we don't have to be. We can be tied up with you. We can be so impressed with you that... Our sin habits and our weaknesses and our problems can fade as we look to you for our strength and our power. Lord, help us this day, help us in this moment to look in your word, glean the fruit of it, to succor it, to be strengthened in it. We ask this because we love you, Jesus, in his name, Father, we ask, amen. So turn to, uh, let's start in Mark chapter 8. 
You know how the pattern goes with Jesus. He's, he's speaking things of the Lord. He's, he's healing people. He's demonstrating who he is. He's showing uh, the, uh, the religious leaders how lost they are, and they're really ticked off. They're constantly ticked off at Jesus, and they hate him more and more and more, and he is in their face, unafraid, unashamed, always, always, always aggressively standing for what he knows is right. He feeds the 5,000, the 4,000 rather, in Mark chapter 8. The Pharisees demand a sign. Jesus is tired of it. He's just tired. And he says in Mark 8, 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? No sign will be given to this generation. In Matthew, we see the sign that he's talking about is the sign of Jonah, where Jonah was, Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, and then he spits him out three days later. That's the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about. That's, that's colored with more language in the other gospel. He left them. He got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Now, not only is Jesus really exhausted in his spirit with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he's really exhausted with his disciples. The best people who follow him, he's just exhausted with them. Listen to what he says um, in uh, Mark 8, starting in verse 14. They forgot to bring bread. Oops. <laughs> Oops. There's not. <laughs> how did you forget to bring bread? I don't know. I don't want to criticize. I don't know how they forgot to bring bread, but that was pretty fundamental. I mean, there's not a grocery store off the other side. So they forgot to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. He cautioned them and he said, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began talking with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> He's not talking about physical bread. Guys, come on. He cautioned them, watch out. In verse 16, they discussed the fact they had no bread. Verse 17, listen to what Jesus says here. See, he asks them seven questions. Seven, bang, bang, bang. He's really, really unhappy. They began, um, I'm sorry, verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, how was he aware of it? Because he's God in human flesh. That's how he's aware of it. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are, you so, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? That's one. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Two. Are your hearts hardened? The implication is you guys have hard hearts. That's the implication of the question and of the, all of these questions. You guys have hard hearts. You're not perceiving or understanding. Having eyes, do you not see... And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Oh, withering. Just withering to these disciples. These are the ones who loved him. They loved him. And still, they're spiritually dense. Like me or like you. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. Verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of the broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said, don't you understand? Do you not yet understand what he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual feeding from the religious leaders. He's, taking, he's saying, beware of them. Don't listen to them. Don't follow what they are doing. Matthew 23 talks about uh, uh, his challenge uh, to, uh, to, the, to the religious leaders and his challenge to the people that says, listen to what they say, uh, do what they tell you, but don't do what they do because they lay up heavy burdens on people and they don't lift a finger themselves to do it. He was really upset. 
Okay, with that as a backdrop, let's turn over to Matthew 16 so we know how Jesus is feeling. You get this picture of Jesus, he's always measured, he's always calm, he's always smooth as a glass. Uh, no, not true. Let's start in verse, uh, Matthew 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let's stop right there. The Son of Man is an interesting phrase that Jesus used to describe himself. He, he's called the Son of God. He often describes himself as the Son of Man. And uh, oftentimes the Scripture speaks of the Son of Man as uh, just a human being. Ezekiel, for example, I think there's about 80 references that the Lord uses to Ezekiel to, to describe him as, as, as a son of man. He's a human being. He is a human being. And Jesus here, yes, it's true. He's describing himself as a human being. Who, does, who, do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? But it's more than that. It's more than Jesus in his humanity. It is that, but it's much deeper than that. This comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel... The prophet Daniel has a vision of the throne room of our Lord. <laughs> After he has this vision, I just want you to know, he says, uh, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious or distressed, and the visions of my head alarmed me, I guess. Could you imagine being escorted into the very throne room of our Lord? Sure, he was distressed, anxious, and alarmed. But listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 7. And look for the statement, Ancient of days and son of man. Starting in verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. That's the Lord himself, depicted in his fatherhood. Not separate, depicted in this vision as separate. One God, three persons. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames. Wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Skipping down to verse 13. I saw the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man. That's the logos of the Trinity. That's the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate, the logos of the Trinity. You're aware, I imagine, that before Jesus came to earth as a man, he was the logos. He is the logos of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the logos. He's like a son of man. He isn't human here. He's like one. It's a vision for what the logos was doing at this point in the prophecy. There was, came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, presented before the ancient of days. And to him, this is the Logos, this is our Lord Jesus, to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Authority, and it is a highly exalted title, Son of Man. So when Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is, he's not just talking about his humanity, he's talking also about his exalted position in his deity. 
let's just be certain that we understand that. And Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. That's the core question of life, isn't it? Who do people say that I am? Let's see. Continuing. And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist is dead at this point, been executed. They said, some say you're uh, resurrected John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah the prophet. Others, Jeremiah, another prophet, or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? That is the core question each of us must answer in our hearts. Who do you say that Jesus is? A good teacher? Uh, a charismatic leader? Somebody who liked to heal people? Maybe stupid man? Got himself crucified? I'm not saying that. I'm saying what I've heard. The core question of life is what you do with Jesus. Just like Pilate had to answer that question, what am I going to do with Jesus? He asked the question, what do you want me to do with Jesus? It's a core question of my life. It's a core question of your life. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Who did it? Who made sure that Simon understood the identity of Jesus? God did it. Peter didn't, uh, uh, Simon at this point, Simon Peter, he didn't get so smart to say, oh, I, I can understand the Old Testament prophecies. I'm so smart. I know exactly what's going on here. He is the Christ. Jesus says, uh, actually, Blessed are you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you, Simon, and you are blessed because he did this for you. I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Before we get to verse 21, I want to give you a little illustration. I was, I was raised on the south side of Chicago. Um, we were not wealthy by any means. It was rough. It was tough. But it was good. In many ways, it was good. I had a rough family. But everything was Polish in my household. We had Polish music, Polish dancing. I can still picture my uncle dancing. <laughs> I have great memories of these parties these Polish relatives of mine had. Polish music, Polish dancing, Polish food all the time. Polish vodka. There, I said it. I said vodka. Is that okay? <laughs> they had Polish vodka. Okay. I mean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. There was whiskey. There was all kinds of stuff. And so it was all Polish all the time. Do you know there's only one city in America that has more Poles? I'm, I mean, sorry. There's only one city in the world that has more Polish people than does Chicago. You know which one that is? Warsaw. <laughs> only city in the world that has more Polish people than Chicago has Polish people. So I know Polish people. I was steeped in Polish. I only regret that my parents and my grandparents never taught me to speak the language. I don't think they wanted me to know what they were saying. My brother and I would goof off and they would speak in Polish and I would look at him and say, I have no idea what they're saying. Let's scatter and we'll see if they can catch us. And, you know, but it was all Polish. So I'm, I'm telling you this because I want you to know I was a Polish kid. I grew up that way. My mother died in 2007 of cancer. It was, it was slow. It was tough. Uh, but uh, a week or so before she died, she called me to her room and to her bed, and, and she said, Gordon, I have something to tell you. I said, okay, 
what, what is it, Mom? She said, I think we're German. <laughs> I said, German. German? Mom, I turned into like a 10-year-old kid. Mom, what are you, oh, whiny little kid. Here I was a grown man. I'm whining at my mother about being German when I know I was Polish. I, I wanted to ask her, well, what in the world was it with all this Polish stuff if we're German? Why? What's the problem? I found out later after my mom passed, she's with the Lord now. After she passed, I said to my, this bothered me so much. I said to my uncle uh, uh, later, who was like the patriarch of the family, and I said, what? My mom said this and that about being German. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. on your mom's side, you're German. I said, well, Nobody ever said that to us. Why? Well, he goes, I know, I, we're Polish, though. We're, uh, my side is Polish. Your dad and I, his, he was my dad's brother. Well, we're Polish, so we raised Polish, you know. I said, well, you know, it would have been nice to know this. See, that little silly story of me being shocked and dismayed and absolutely having my mind explode because my mom said we're German when I knew we were Polish, that's what the disciples felt when Jesus says this next section. Exactly. They were saying, what are you talking about? So he has, uh, uh, Simon Peter recognizes because God gave it to him, not because Simon was better or smarter. He revealed it to Simon, and from this time, after this was recognized, verse 21, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter Verse 22, Peter took him aside. Now imagine, Peter, smart elk Peter, he's, well, I, I was just, I just spoke for God, you know. I don't, I don't, I'm, it doesn't say this in the scripture, but he's, he grabs Jesus. That's the implication. He grabs Jesus and drags him away. Can you imagine this? Peter took him aside, like by force, and he began to rebuke Jesus. Rebuke is a strong word for Stop doing that. You stop that right now. You stop. You know what it is to rebuke someone or to be receiving of a rebuke. It's not pleasant. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, grabs him, and he says, Far be it from you, Lord, which is another way of saying, God, be merciful to you. Oh, really? Really, Peter? Oh, yakey. Oh, that's what my grandma used to say. Oh, yakey, she'd say. That means, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen next? Far be it from you, Lord, so Peter's rebuking him. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned. Now, in Mark 8, you'll see Jesus turned, and he looked at the other disciples, and he saw what they were seeing, which was the unbelievable rebuke of him by Peter. He sees the disciples, Mark says, and he turns to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You can just sense he's angry. You are a hindrance to me, or a stumbling block. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, this is really interesting. You catch this. It's pretty obvious, and I know you catch it because you're, you're smart people. Jesus commends Simon for acknowledging that he's the Christ. God revealed it to Simon. Just a little time later, Jesus says, you're speaking now for Satan. Oh, my goodness. So, what does that mean to me? Peter was a good man. Peter loved Jesus. He was one of his best guys. So he's speaking for God one minute, and then just not so long after that, he's speaking the words of Satan himself. 
What does that tell us? That tells us, boy, you better be careful in thinking you've got it all figured out. I'm speaking to me as I speak to you. Be careful. He who stands, take heed lest he fall. One minute you're speaking for the Lord. The next minute you're speaking the very words that Satan wants you to speak. And Jesus is taking none of it. He is standing for none of it. I was at a church last Sunday, out of town again, and um, I don't even remember much about the service, but I remember I was sitting there standing, listening, and, and I didn't know the music, so I couldn't really sing, but I, I was listening and, and observing the lyrics on the screen, and this lyric uh, jumped out at me. It said, I have stood tall, and I have crumbled in the same breath. Is that you? It's me. Standing tall, here I am, Lord, look at me. And then crumbling like a little cheap lawn chair in the same breath within a few minutes. Why? Because I'm stuck in this body, as are you stuck in yours. We're just people. We stumble and we bumble. Aren't you glad that Jesus is so patient with us? He could have killed Peter just like that. I have stood tall and I have, I have crumbled in the same breath. Uh, I used to work in corporate America uh, before I went into full-time vocational ministry. I hate saying that because it's like, okay, now you have the secular, now you have the sacred, and oh, oh, you were called. No. If everybody was in vocational ministry, who would, who would contribute to the church? If everybody was in vocational ministry, who would be out there in the world dealing with all of this stuff that the world's throwing at you? But when I was in the secular workplace, I, I'll never forget this experience, and I'm telling you this because I'm ashamed of it. I was on a, a call, a, a global call. This was quite a few years ago now. And um, I was taking notes because each one of us was going to have to speak different things about what we were doing. And the, the hot shots in the headquarters of New Jersey were on the phone and, you know, the big guns. And the biggest gun on the phone, out of nowhere, she says, these are pagan people. They don't know the Lord. She says, what is the role of the Holy Spirit anyway? I looked up and I thought, what? Did I just hear her say, what is the role of the Holy Spirit anyway? And I thought, I know what the Holy Spirit does. He, he comforts the believers. He convicts the world of sin. He glorifies Jesus. That's what he does. He doesn't call attention to himself. He calls attention to Jesus, and he lifts him high without any understanding or, or uh, a knowledge that you're supposed to praise the Spirit. So there were about 20 or 25 people on this call all around the world in this hot shot of... Uh, in New Jersey, asked the question. I knew the answer. Guess what? I said nothing. Nothing. I was an elder of the church. I had been an elder for years. Now, I thought, I was so, so um, distraught because I failed. So I was, you know, doing elder stuff and all this important stuff that elders are supposed to do. And then this surprise challenge came my way, and I folded. And I, I, I said to the Lord, never again, never again will I fold like that. So, this reminded me of this today because as Peter had the same problem, and we all have this problem, there are different things we, uh, we do that are 
frustrating to us because we're just mere men and women or young children, whatever we are, and we fall in many ways. But I'll tell you what, I had another occasion after that where somebody was blaspheming. I was working out, and this man started blaspheming the Lord, and I thought, as I was working out, I thought, well, okay, Lord, they're going to kick me out of here. Okay. It wasn't long after my, my failure that this happened, and I said, if I, if I say something, they're, they're going to kick me out because it's going to require me to, to make a scene. And you want me to make a scene? He's blaspheming. And I said, oh, they'll never let me back in. They're going to call the police. And I'm, so, I'm, I'm arguing in my heart. I, finally, I said, he was really bad what he said. I said, you know, he's about as close as my jacket is over there. I said, you know, um, God doesn't like it when you use his name in vain. Uh, you better not mess with him because he's not going to tolerate it. He's patient, but he won't be patient forever. And he's sneering at me, this man. And I said, uh, you know, you look like you're about 70 years old. How many years do you think you got left? How many? You're going to live to 95? If you live to 95, that's good. You'll have grace. God's giving you a chance. You better stop blaspheming. He doesn't like it. He hates it. He could kill you right now. <laughs> well, he, he, look, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know that. He left in a huff, and the whole place was really quiet. And I thought, I'm doing my elliptical, and I'm thinking, okay, just kill me now, Lord, because they're going to call the police. They're going to throw me out of here. And, and, uh, and I thought, oh, I really I messed it up so bad, Lord. I'm trying, but I messed up. See what I did now? I caused a big mess. Everybody hates you now because of me. And this one young gal, I don't know, she walked by my elliptical, and I'm, I'm just, you know, and she goes, like that. And I thought, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. But look, you fail, God gives you another chance. He gave me another chance. That's our Lord for you. You see, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of who you are comes what you do. The be and the do dynamic. You are a hindrance to me, he said to Peter. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I ask myself, what is my mind set on today? What is it set on today? Am I thinking about barbecue beef? <laughs> Am I thinking about, you know, whatever? Am I thinking about a new boat I want, or maybe I want to go to the ocean, or maybe I want to do this or that? There's nothing wrong with those things. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. They're fine, and they're good. But if they occupy your heart, if they occupy what you think about all the time, so that as the minutes go by, you're thinking, oh, I miss my boat. Oh, I really miss my boat. Or even if I miss my spouse, that's okay. That's a good thing if you care for your spouse, you love your spouse. But this, your spouse is not God. Your boat is not God. Set your mind on the things of God, which is why the Shema is so important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What you think about the soul, the immaterial part of who you are. That soul is what's going to live forever, not your body. Your body will not live forever. That immaterial part of who you are is your soul. That's what's going to live forever. The great expectations. You see, Peter and the disciples had great expectations that the Messiah would come and he would overthrow the Roman rulers. Uh, they expected that, and they were not entirely wrong. Um, um, 
Daniel speaks of the Messiah's coming, and he will overthrow the ungodly, wicked, pagan rulers. He will. And you know Jesus will in the second coming. He will. But see what they did? They mistakenly thought that that was the first coming of the Messiah. That he was going to come in power and in glory and all that fire and all that amazing presence that we're all going to see someday eventually as we know him. Or even if we don't, we'll see that and be wishing a rock would fall on us. That's coming. But see, they expected it to come in this season of the world's existence, and it didn't. So the great expectations that these people had, both the um, unbelieving world and his best people, the disciples, uh, was not to be met. And so the title of my sermon is Great Expectations, Put Them Behind Thee. The great expectations that you have in this life, just put them behind you, focus on what God says is valuable, what's important. And you can live in this world and face the, the ridicule and the disrespect, disregard for the Lord, and you can stand there and, and you can receive that and still stand strong. Not that you'll be perfect, but he uses your imperfections and your failures to make you stronger and better. Verse 24 of Matthew 16. Jesus, said to, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself and take up his cross. You notice his cross or her cross. It's personal. It's personal. It's individual. I'm not a Christian because someone in my family is a Christian. I'm a Christian because I know Christ. Each of you has that decision. Who do you say I am? You say he's the Christ? Show me, Jesus is saying. If you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whatever your challenges are, whatever your physical infirmities are, whatever your limitations are, whatever money you don't have, whatever your difficulties are, take it up. Value what God values, follow Him, and do what He wants you to do based upon your relationship with Him. Be and then do. Remember, doing is just an overflow of who you are. That's who God is. He's a, it's an overflow of who He is. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work, Jesus said in John 4. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, man. All of this life, you know, you, 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 you get pressed by the world to really think about what about me, me, I want me to be comfortable, me needs comfort, me needs all this, I need that, I want that, I have to have that. Jesus says, forget about that. Lose it for my sake and you will find it. That's the paradox. The paradox of his economy is forget about you, think about him and follow him and you will gain the peace that he wants to give you in this life, whatever you're doing. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? This is my, many of us have life verses, verses that we remember so well because uh, they, they meant so much to us when we were converted. And I know some of you were raised in a Christian home and you might not have this, and that's okay. You've, you're blessed because you are spared a lot of pain. So be thankful for that. But when I became a Christian in my 20s, from being a flaming pagan, <laughs> flaming, I'm not kidding, I was a flaming pagan. 
somehow this verse made it into my mind. I have no idea how it came into my mind. I don't remember how. But I remember before I was saved, I had this, this verse in my head. I don't remember even trying to read it or remember it. But I remember thinking, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his own life or he loses his soul? And what will a man give in return for his life? What is it worth? What is all of my ambition and, and everything I was wanting to accomplish? What does it matter if I gain everything and then I learn at the end of my life, it's nothing. What is your soul worth? And what's the profit if he gains the whole world and then he dies and he's lost? It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. The only thing that lasts is him and his people. That's the importance of the local church. That's why Vanguard is so important. That's why each of you are, is so important. Not because of you, because of Vanguard, but because of him. And whatever impact this church can make in this community, it's okay. Be contented in the season he has us. Work hard. Don't be a sluggard. Remember Hebrews 5 and 6 that we talked about the first time on the body life question. Be diligent, be earnest. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What will a man give in return for his life? Here we go, verse 27. He calls himself the Son of Man again. For the Son of Man, and don't forget Daniel 7. The Son of Man, the highly exalted one from Daniel 7. Here's what he is. He's more than a man. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That doesn't mean you have work salvation. It doesn't mean that. If you just isolated that verse, you might think that. But the Scriptures are a melded cloth, melded and woven together for us to understand all of the entirety of God's mind, his economy, and his values. What have you done with Jesus? What have I done with Jesus? Am I just going to accept salvation and go on and live however I want? Or will I take his offer of salvation and the gift that he's given to me and live for him and do what he wants and make that my food? He's going to come in the glory of his Father to repay according to what you have done. If you go over to Mark chapter 8, there's another verse that I think is Really important here. Mark 8, 38. And this is what I, when I told you that account of when I failed on that call with those fancy big shots in corporate. Uh, Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what's it going to be for me What's it going to be for you if God grants us the privilege of being here when he comes back a second, when he comes back this time? If we're ashamed of him today, he's going to be ashamed of us. We'll still get in. I'm not saying you're going to lose it, salvation. Uh, but if you, want to re, if you want to say, oh boy, I'm so excited to see Jesus. If you're ashamed of him now, among people who hate his guts, the world hates him. It's just more manifest today than it's been in many, many years. The, the, the Christians today are ridiculed, mocked, told that they're evil. You're the problem. You evil Christians are the problem. You hate this. You hate that. No, not true. If you're ashamed of him among people who hate him, you're going to eat bitter fruit as a result. Let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of us. Faithful followers of Jesus 
What do you say of Christ? What do you do with Him? The one and others, the be and the do dynamic, doing as a fruit of being. Just to call this out with more emphasis, that being and the doing, again, from Psalm 119, where the psalmist writes in verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Be. Teach me the way of your statutes, and I will what? I'll do it. I will keep it to the end. Why? Why will I do that? Verse 34. Give me understanding. Why would I give you understanding? That I may keep your law, that I may do what you want, and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments I'm doing, because I delight in it as a result of your leading me in the paths of your commandments. I delight in it. I'm happy to do it. It's not that hard, really, because I love you. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Be not for selfishness, not for selfish gains. Be and do. Make that a practice of your life so that we don't have to be ashamed at our own behavior when He comes or when He takes us out of this life into the next. The great expectations we have, make them His expectations. Put those other expectations behind you like He forced Peter by the neck to see that's not right, Peter. I gave you this gift to recognize who I am. Now I'm telling you, you're speaking for the very enemy of my life, Satan. Let that not be said of us. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.